0: Hello, for Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women.
1: Hello, For Sober Chicks world. This is Meredith, and as always, I am joined by Heather, Dana, and Tracy. And today we have an amazing guest. We are all really excited um, because this is someone who just education, career, um, is, is really doing impactful things when it comes to um, the overall recovery community. So I want to introduce Ms, or Dr. Sarah Church uh, to the podcast. Um, I'm going to read your bio really fast, and then we'll just let you get into it. But Dr. Church is a clinical psychologist who has more than 20 years of experience in research, program development, and treatment of patients with substance use and co-occurring mental health disorders. She's an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy, community reinforcement approach, and contingency management, and also the founder and executive director of Whole View Wellness. Before starting Whole View Wellness, Dr. Church served as the executive director of the Division of Substance Abuse at a medical center and is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Albert Einstein College of Medicine for 16 years. That is a lot, <laughs> a lot of stuff, but we are so excited for you to kind of open our our minds and views on this whole um, therapy approach that I think is absolutely so
2: crucial um, in recovery. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The work that you guys are doing to bring this information out to people so people can learn about treatment is so important, so I'm really glad to be here. Good, good. Well,
1: with that, I will kind of hand the reins over to you, and and we are all ears.
2: Sure, sure. So, so I started my career uh, really doing research. So I, you know, I, I got my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, I did my uh, predoctoral fellowship at Yale School of Medicine, um, and while I was there, the, the the there were different tracks, and the track that um, I ended up. Um, applying for and getting was the addiction track and I had a friend who was in that program um, and he highly recommended it and when I met some of the people who were there when I did my interviews I just really loved them and they um, encouraged me to come and I I thought if I was leaving New York City you know it would be it would be you know I didn't really want to leave New York City but To go to Yale, I figured I would go ahead and and take that chance. So I did that. I did a a fellowship there. Um, The research they're doing there in addictions is fantastic. I learned so much. And I immediately just knew I, I loved it. I loved seeing how patients could change so much. When patients come in struggling with alcohol, with heroin, with cocaine, with other substances, um, within three months of treatment, they look like different people. Like it was so exciting to see the change and the the recovery that was going on and how treatment really helped people that I was just, I was like really um, pulled into it and I really enjoyed it. And I did a mixture of research and clinical work there and learned a lot about evidence-based practices. They were doing a lot of the research to, to sort of support the evidence for the evidence-based practices. And I was able to to participate in a lot of that while I was there. And I stayed on for another year with my mentor, Kathy Carroll, who was like an incredible woman. Um, she did a lot of the the baseline CBT research Um, And I was doing a study with her and we were looking at medications and therapies for cocaine use disorder for people struggling with cocaine. And we gave them um, antabuse, which is a medicine that makes you sick if you drink alcohol. And we also tried three different psychotherapies, interpersonal therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and 12-step facilitation, which is a therapy that just sort of encourages people to go to 12 steps um, and sort of tracks and monitors whether they have a sponsor and whether they're engaging and are they doing the steps and that kind of stuff. Um, and so we looked at those three different therapies versus um, like a sort of a, a control condition where they just sort of met with the patient and asked them about the symptoms they were having with the medication. Um, and um, and we looked at whether the medication was helping the the, the um, antibodies and which therapy um, was helping the most. Um, and what came from that study was really interesting. We found that all three therapies were effective. All three therapies helped people get better over time. Interestingly, with CBT, people got better and better and better after three months. They actually were able, because they were thinking about and practicing the skills in their own mind, they were getting and using them more and more over time, which was really interesting and exciting. Um, and we we found that Antibus actually did help people use less cocaine over time, which was really interesting. And and that was, you know, there were a lot of theories about why that was, but we we think it was. First of all, some people will have a couple of drinks and then think cocaine is a good idea and which they wouldn't think if they didn't have those drinks. So you kind of take that off the plate. And then also when people are like really using a lot of cocaine, alcohol can kind of moderate the the anxiety and the twitchy kind of feelings that people get when they're using too much. And also when they're crashing, sometimes they use alcohol. So for a variety of reasons, the, the ant abuse actually helped because it took alcohol off the off the table. And then, but all three therapies helped which was really interesting. So I did that for about a year and then I was like I have to get back to New York I cannot be away from New York. my boyfriend now husband at the t- boyfriend at the time now husband was here so we were doing this back and forth thing. Uh, so I asked my mentor um, you know do you know of any jobs in New York and her mentor was at Columbia um, and had a position open so I applied for it and was able to get that job and came to Columbia um, at the medical school and did research there for four years um, also looking at different psychotherapies looking at different medications. The therapies for heroin use um, and for marijuana and cocaine, a lot of different treatment. Um, we were looking at different kinds of detox for alcohol, um, and for opiates. Uh, and I did that for four years. We did research, which was really, really interesting and fun and rewarding. Um, and then I got, um, recruited to do a startup project in the Bronx for people applying for welfare who, um, Um, had substance use issues. And we would do evaluations of them. And then we would put together a care plan for them. And then we had case managers who would help them and advocate for them all around the Bronx um, to get them the care that we thought would be best for them. And I was really, really disappointed at what I saw at the time. So this is way back in 2001. Um, the, The treatment that was being offered in most of those programs in the Bronx was not what we had known was working we were we were doing all this research and all this evidence and you know we knew what was working we knew the therapies that were working and then when i went out into the community i saw oh my goodness nobody's nobody's getting the therapies that work they're just getting like i di- i didn't even know what was going on in some of these programs um because i had care managers all over the bronx and they would report back to me what they were seeing when they went to the treatment programs and they weren't getting what we had recommended in the treatment plans they were you know it was really disheartening um And then after four years of that, I got recruited to run the division of substance abuse at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which is a large treatment um, network We had 3000 patients, I was like, Oh, this is my chance I can, I can have it, you know, like I can have an impact I can like bring some of these evidence based treatments in and get it going for these patients and, and so I did that and I did that for. About 16, 17 years um, where we were doing a lot of methadone treatment, but we also did buprenorphine, which is, those are medications for opioid use disorder, for, for heroin and oxycodone, that kind of um, struggle. And, but we also did a lot of treatment for other substances. Um, and we did individual and group therapy, and we did a lot of um, treatment for HIV and hep C. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we did some good work there. But, um, but I never got to the place where I was doing the really high quality, nuanced psychotherapy that I really wanted to do or that I really wanted patients to get. Um, it, was, it was in a hospital setting. It was in a union setting. There were just a lot of struggles and things that kind of kept me from being able to do what I wanted to do. So five years ago, I... I started it on my own. I started my own treatment center called Wholeview wellness here in Manhattan, where we provide what I think is like some of the best, really high quality addiction, psychotherapy using all PhD level psychologists. Um, you know, we do individual group and family therapy at a wellness. And, um, I just called up like some of the psychologists I really like the most and said like how we wanted to do it and what we're going to do. And all of them agreed to join me. So our initial team were people I knew for like 20 years who were really like amazing therapists. So we've been doing that for the last five years and it's been a joy to do this, this work. And, but what was really sad was a lot of times people would call up and and they wouldn't be able to afford high quality psychotherapy in a private practice setting. It's expensive. And, you know, we've got Manhattan rent and all of that. Um, and it was like heartbreaking that we couldn't provide care for everybody. So I got um, a New York state Oasis license. That's the state licensing agency in New York. I got that license and then I um, got Medicaid contracts. So we got a bunch of managed Medicaid contracts. And so in the last year, we've actually been able to provide care to people who wouldn't normally get this level of quality, this kind of treatment. Um, and so we um, we actually hired a medical director, uh, a physician who was really well trained and several um, nurse practitioners, so we can provide medications for patients. And we're also, we basically have my PhD level psychologists um, supervising my master's level clinicians in the, in the um, whole view direct program. Um, and so we're basically trying to create as much as possible the feel of a, a group psychotherapy practice, but uh, for the Medicaid population in whole view direct. Um, and that's fully virtual. During COVID, we kind of learned how to do virtual care. We feel like we're pretty good at it. And so we're able to treat people all over New York state. We've got people in Albany and Troy and Buffalo and Rochester, all the way up by the border of Canada. So it's been really exciting the last year. Our program's really grown and we've been able to provide care throughout the state of New York.
1: So let me, um, this is kind of me coming in I mean, I have gone to therapy. I'm continuing, like I'm still in therapy. What is the difference between what people just term as therapy and psychotherapy? I feel like that's um, a question that I've had because I'm I'm hearing you talk about all this and I'm like, should I be doing psychotherapy?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if there's a difference between psychotherapy and therapy, but there's a difference between counseling and therapy. So, in a lot of addiction treatment programs around the country, what they're doing is counseling. And that's provided by like licensed professional counselors or case acts in New York. They're, they're people who have some degree, they might have a credential, but they're not licensed clinicians. So they can't perform psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is like a protected term um, that you can only use if you're if you're a licensed psychologist, social worker, or psychiatrist, I believe. Um, but a lot of people get counseling and those counselors often aren't trained in mental health care so they know about addiction but they may not know much about depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and disorder and trauma and like a lot of the other things that commonly come come along with drinking and, and drug use um so so yeah did that does that
1: answer yes question? absolutely yeah. yes 100 yeah.
2: Yep. yeah and 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 not all therapists are trained in doing the types of therapies that are effective for substance use. Like a lot of graduate programs don't do any training in addiction. As a matter of fact, my, I went to Fordham for my PhD. I didn't get a single class in addiction. Um, I did all my training when I was on my in my fellowships and in my internships and in my externships.
1: Okay. So for example, like currently the therapy that I'm in, I've had um, an unhealthy amount of concussions. So I'm working with like a traumatic brain injury um, therapist currently to try to help heal that um, because, and then you throw on the trauma and then you throw on the past addiction and there's like, it is amazing to me that there are so many layers um, to therapy because that was Like at one point, um, I also have a, a dear friend of mine who is also a therapist, but I went to her and I was like explaining my symptoms. And I was like, for the first time ever, I'm actually wondering if the brain trauma that I had in my younger years is kind of catching up with me. And she was like, just what you're telling me on how many times you've had a concussion, you were like legit knocked out on all of them. She was like, that right there is 100%. Like you have brain trauma. We need to find someone who specializes in that. And when I went and talked to her, you know, yes, like the trauma and the addiction came up. She's like, but your brain trauma is kind of that overarching thing that we really need to get under, under control. And that will help us deal with the trauma that will help us deal with all those other things. But, um it wasn't until i started asking questions and mm-hmm. i feel like that is something that i am a huge proponent of is it doesn't matter cuz i felt kind of alone just like i did when i was drinking i was like well i must be the only one who does this and you know stuff like that but once i started like actually asking questions people were like yes like you do need a very specific skill set in a yep. therapist And it's not just you need to go to therapy. So I'm a huge proponent of people being advocates for themselves and just asking the questions, which I I think is huge because if I wouldn't have asked, I would not have found the therapy that I'm, I'm currently in.
2: That's fantastic. Like, I think that people often, and if you're not an addiction professional, you're not going to think about this, but people who struggle with alcohol um, often have head injuries. They fall and they hit their head or they have other kinds of like accidents or problems like that. Um, They also have sometimes fights where there's some kind of interpersonal violence, things like that. And there could be a brain injury um, with that. Also, people who struggle with heroin in this in this age often have um, non-fatal overdoses where their brain doesn't get oxygen for a short period of time or a period of time. That can cause a brain injury. And having a neuropsychologist do a full evaluation of that can really help because there's a lot of, um, of treatments for executive functioning issues that ca- can be caused by brain injuries. We have a therapist, Hema Reddy, at WholeView. She runs a group called Ready, Set, Go. Um, And it's all about executive functioning skills that can, you know, so there's, there can be brain injuries, there can be like, um, lack of oxygen because of like a non fatal overdose. And but there's also just ADHD is really common in people who are struggling with alcohol and drug use, right? So right. So um, and that and that can play into the issues. So you there, like you said, there's so many layers, it's like an onion, like you take off one layer, and then there's you know, 10 more beneath that. And you need to sort of like deal with all of it, right? Like as a whole person. You know? well, Dr. Church, Tracy here,
3: you know, it's a really good segment. Cause I was wondering like, how do you get your referrals? How do, how do patients, do they go to their GP? They talk about their struggles, which is already so hard to admit anyway. I mean, you know, doctors ask how many glasses of wine do you have a week? You know, <laughs> I, I, so how, how do you find, how do, do you find your patients, or how do they find
2: you? It's so many different ways. So, I mean, we have like Psychology Today profiles. We have um, we do Google Ads, but um, you know, a lot of people um, Google. I, I think sometimes, like you said, people are are hesitant to like tell people that they're struggling with alcohol or drug use, so they they go online and they look people up. So a lot of it, a lot of people find us through through searching on the web. Um, and then a lot of times, um, independent therapists don't want to, don't know how to treat addiction or, or substitutes. So we'll get referrals from therapists who are like, oh, I just realized my patient's struggling with drinking and I didn't know until they'll send that patient to us. Um, we get, you know, um, referrals from rehabs and detoxes from sober living from, um, like, like every, like, like so many different ways. Um, but I would say online is really popular, um, like on ZenCare and and Zocdoc and some of the online places. Um, Amazing. And so Medicaid
3: is definitely a provider and an assistance. And do other insurance
2: companies cover this as well? So we're we're sort of a funny <laughs> program. So we we take a lot of um, med- Medicaid managed care and then the essential plans. The sort of the like Ob- Obamacare. So like Health First, Fidelis, um, MetroPlus. Like we take a bunch of those plans. Um, and some of them also have like commercial insurance. So we, we sort of contracted for all of that. And then we have private pay, which is sort of like, like both ends of the spectrum is what we have now. I, I, people are asking me like, when are you going to take commercial insurance? And I, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's, we're learning as we go and we're sort mm-hmm. of like, running, yeah. um, sort of step-by-step. Step, so,
3: And then one more thing, I know you mentioned there's three different type of t- therapies that you started with or that you do now in your practice. The one is the medicine that makes you sick. Second is a like a 12 step recovery program. What is the second?
2: Well that those were three therapies that we were we were doing a research study to to, to compare with one another. That was many years ago. That was way back in nineteen ninety-six through ninety-eight. So that was like a long okay. time ago but, but we use a lot of those now, but we use a lot of other things too. There's, there's, there's so many therapies. So I would say the basis for what we do is we start with motivational interviewing, which is a therapy to sort of figure out like, what's the internal motivation for this person to make a change? Like why do they want to make a change? Is it, is it that their relationship is failing? Is it that their health is failing? Is it that they had problems at work? Is it that they, you know, what, you know, like, what is it that, that is a problem? Like what is getting in the, in the way? So sort of, So using motivational interviewing techniques to figure that out. And then once we've got someone who's like motivated for care and ready to make some changes, then we use cognitive behavioral therapy, which is just looking at like, what's a trigger? What's a craving? How do you cope with cravings? What's what's their emergency plan, you know, things like that, like real, like those tools that people have in their toolbox, we'd like to give them lots of tools. And we'll also use DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And that's, um, that's a group of four different kinds of skills. There's emotion regulation, distress tolerance, um, mindfulness, and interpersonal effectiveness. So those are even more skills that patients can learn to sort of, you know, figure out like how to do things differently when they're not drinking or using um so we have like skills based groups and then we also have some um psychodynamic groups we use supportive expressive therapy which is a psychodynamic treatment to help people learn how like it's sort of like a like what is their main wish what is their main desire and what's getting in the way of them achieving that getting to that we use mentalization therapy which is a psychodynamic treatment that looks at um attachment issues and also interpersonal issues and teaches people sort of what's going on inside of them and what's going on inside of others and how do they how do they hold both of those things in their mind at the same time while they're navigating the relationship because um 80 of relapse is around some kind of interpersonal struggle so if we can help people navigate their interpersonal relationships better they're more likely to to not drink again or use again um And then we have a lot of bunch of different therapies for trauma because a lot of people who've struggled with alcohol and drug use have trauma, uh, especially our women. Um, We also have, what else do we have? ACT, which is like looking at people's goals and values and is their behavior in line with their goals and values or is it like divergent from their goals and values and how can we bring those things together? Um, so lots of different therapies. Like we try to look at into the field and see which therapies are helpful and support and, and proven to work through science. And then we had developed group and individual therapy. And then when we do an evaluation of a patient, we sort of slot them into the therapies we think are gonna help. We also have a group for people of color, we have a group for LGBTQ folks. Um, so we sort of, you know, we sort of listen to what's going on in our patients, and then we try to develop the therapies that are gonna work for them. And, oh, and there's pro- <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Actually, there's medication too, so there's a lot of different medications that can help. Alcohol and opioid use disorder have the most um, FDA-approved meds for them, um, and then there's you know just regular medicines for um, mental health, for depression, for anxiety, for sleep, for other things that might be
0: um, problematic. Your program sounds incredible. It sounds like it really. I don't know it the client is at the center of it, right? And everything else is kind of put around them and that's amazing. Um, So I'm assuming that that both of your programs, the self-pay and then also the Medicaid-based ones that is at home are outpatient, right? Yes, that's right. So when someone, you know, when I personally went to rehab and I was there for 10 weeks and I needed a program that had trauma, but fully understand not everybody has, that re that amount of time uh the support to be able to do that um or even the resources so when you're looking at these two groups i'm really curious about the ones that are receiving treatment virtually at home so they're not leaving their home environment at all and then also the group that's coming in for these outpatient services How are you seeing the, you know, what's the outcome of that? Or, I mean, don't have to give me hard facts, but, or hard numbers, but just what are you seeing with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, You know, our program is not right for everybody. There are definitely patients who come to us and we think, oh, they really need a higher level of care first. Like if they're drinking around the clock or they're, you know, if they're really um, doing a lot of risky, dangerous things and they really need a safe environment for a little bit to try to sort of get control, we will often refer to a higher level of care first and they may do rehab or even residential or, you know, something like that for a period of time. And then we always, you know, welcome them back to us after, you know, to do outpatient after, um, but we, that happens. And then also sometimes people come to us and we think, oh, we're, we're just the right level of care for them and we get started and then maybe there's a relapse or a recurrence of use, or things just get worse for whatever reason. And then we refer to a higher level of care. So there's, there can be a back and forth with that. Um, and and the other thing that we do sometimes is sometimes people just aren't able to do virtual care. Maybe they're too distracted when they're in their home. They're like, you know, on their phone, they're they're doing a million things or they're not like engaged with us or they're just like not showing up or that kind of thing. Sometimes we'll refer to in-person outpatient care uh, uh, instead of us if, if we think that's a better fit for them. And 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 people kind of go back and forth between those levels of care too. So I think of us as sort of like the lowest level of outpatient care possible. And then in, in person outpatient care would be at the next level. And then, um, you know, detox and rehab and residential sort of, sort of the whole continuum.
0: Okay. So I'm imagining that people are listening to this episode and are very excited about the possibilities of therapy, but have zero idea what, where to start or what would benefit them or, um, how that even works so for someone that is maybe not had any experience with therapy, what would you say to them or recommend to them? so
2: I'd say don't be don't be scared that it's <laughs> it that it actually can be really interesting and really exciting to learn about yourself um, I know that it could be a lot of people like hesitate to 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 try it but um I think most people find when they get there it's actually like, a supportive warm environment, um, definitely get recommendations from, from, you know, maybe your primary care doctor or from a friend or from like maybe a 12 step support group, like of, of a therapist that's good. Or if you don't have that go online and look at ratings online. Cause you can, like, if someone has a lot of positive ratings, they're more likely to be someone who is warm and caring and supportive. Um, so I think those things matter. Um. And the other thing I would say is that treatment works. You know, I think people don't realize how effective therapy is for alcohol use and substance use. Um, The research shows that it actually really helps people just as much as treatment for diabetes or asthma or hypertension, any chronic medical disorder, which is how I see this. um, They're all really um, treatable. Um, You just have to go, you know, you have to try
0: it.
4: It's really, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I don't, everybody's asked the question. I'm like, I'm writing furiously all the things I wanted to ask, and everybody keeps asking them. So I'm <laughs> um, there's a couple of things, though, that I just kind of wanted to point out that I was really curious about. Um, Meredith was talking about the different layers that she's been going through with her therapy. Um, and then you talked about the enormous amount of <laughs> layers. That you see with the people that are coming in um i'm not quite sure i really have a question you might be able to find one out of this (laughs) these statements but it's really curious to me um because it happened for me like you think you're just going to quit drinking or you're going to quit some substance that you're using and you don't realize that there's all these different layers that may have something to do with it. It's a side effect of something that's deeper. And when people realize that, do they shy away from therapy because they are now scared to death and terrified to find out what the heck is actually inside? Yeah. <laughs> because-
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I think it's it can be frightening a little bit, but also in the right context, it can be really like, reassuring and it can also be like enlightening you can feel like oh that's why i'm that crazy i'm doing this because i have i had trauma when i was a child and every time i get triggered and these are the things that are triggering me every time i get triggered then i just i end up drinking too much um and i didn't realize that connection potentially you know and i like i have a patient who um had a lot of childhood trauma and she um we together realized that when she was feeling foggy, she had she would have this feeling of being foggy and she had no idea what it was or where it was coming from, but that was dissociation. And she would, something would trigger her, then she would have this feeling of fogginess and then she would end up like drinking or doing something um, she wouldn't normally do. And once we realized that connection, that that certain things would trigger her and that th- then she would have this feeling of fogginess, then she had more control. She was like, "Oh, I'm feeling foggy. I was triggered. I can handle this. I'm gonna meditate, or I'm gonna call a friend, or I'm gonna do yoga. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, um, manage my nervous system a little bit." But she, once she realized all of that was happening, it gave her so much more control.
4: That, that can be really scary crazy. to sort <laughs> of figure yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it is scary. I mean, I've, I've gone through it, you know, and I think. um you know, everybody on this call has gone gone through it and it is scary, but when you get to the other side, it's, it's a really beautiful thing too, because, you know, it, it allows you to give yourself some grace and, um, release a little bit of guilt and shame and things that go along with it. So I appreciate that, you know, people stick around for the deeper parts.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And our mentalization therapy, I think is really super helpful for this, like sort of understanding, like when you're feeling guilt, when you're feeling shame, like, and shame is one of the things that can trigger people, right? Like that's, that's a really deep, powerful, painful emotion that people have. And it, it often comes along with substance use disorders because things happen that people feel like really low about. Um, and sort of recognizing that and
0: working through some of that can be super helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I'll hop into this layer of, of therapy too. You know, when you mentioned ADHD, like I have trauma, I have addiction. And after I got sober, I wasn't feeling, you know, four years in, I wasn't feeling amazing things. I, you know, my life had changed, but I still was having, you know, racing thoughts. I was still having, you know, these kind of, um, compulsions and and changes in my energy and all of these kinds of things and being really super invested in one thing and then not. And I was doing um, an ADHD evaluation for one of my kids and I was like, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So, you know, I go and I'm like, okay, I want to, you know, I, I clearly probably need to be evaluated. And, You know, trauma can look the same. So, this is this layer. You know, trauma can also look the same. And I have a really incredible psychiatrist who specializes in ADHD. And he's like, you know, yes, it could be one or the other, but if we try medication, you know, trauma doesn't usually respond to stimulants. And so, that will be, you know, if you want to go with that, we can do that. And taking a stimulant, which is what I chose to do, everybody gets to make that choice for themselves was the first time I felt like I was in my body in years. And I thought taking a stimulant was gonna be like cocaine or something or speed, you know, it was gonna really like make me hyper, um, hyper perform and be able to get all these things done. And that is not at all how I experienced. It was like, things just calmed down and my, I felt like I was in my body and it was so incredible. And I was like, wow. So then it's this chicken and the egg, right? Because who knows what, I know, you know, where the trauma started, but um, the ADHD was a part of that. And I think the addiction served on both sides, right? It served to, to deal with the trauma, but it also served to deal with this mind that works differently. And a lot of women are being diagnosed with ADHD these days. And so what are your thoughts about that and that aspect of it? Well, I think that women, I mean, I think we know women often, they miss the
2: diagnosis in women because they're inattentive and not hyperactive as, as often. Um, and so a lot of times, and, and I think your experience having your child evaluated and you're like, oh, some of these <laughs> symptoms like sound familiar. That's not uncommon. And that women sometimes get diagnosed and men too, when their child is diagnosed, because they they sort of real, they recognize the symptoms in their childhood, that they're things that they struggled with as a child and that it wasn't as common back when we were kids, you know? So, um, and, and it's, it's much less diagnosed in women than men. So it's definitely something to look at. Right. And it's great that you had a psychiatrist who was willing to work with you and to see whether stimulants were right for you, but in the context of knowing your history and knowing, um, that, you know, that you want to keep a close eye on that to see if there are any kind of, um, you know, if if you might want to overuse that, or you might be drawn to that, you know, a lot of people maybe alcohol is the only thing they struggled with, and stimulants were never a thing. And and the stimulants could be extremely helpful for the ADHD. So and an and could prevent relapse with the drinking because you're getting you're dealing with the you know the racing thoughts or the inattention or the other things that were going on that were maybe never addressed.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I will say that. For anybody who goes through this process, you have to be 100% transparent about your addiction and about your, um, uh, and I was very upfront and, you know, um, very diligent that it does not become, because we know about, uh, you know, substitute addictions, we know about, or switching addictions and that kind of thing, and you're always vulnerable to that. So yes, I, you know, transparency has definitely been something that I've been able to make sure that he knows and I know and we're on the same page so
2: that's fantastic that you can and that's what we try to really work with you know when our patients are really honest with us and we we can work with them around things we can figure out the solutions better you know and people like some people struggle with stimulants and still have adhd and then that's a, like a tough nut to crack too like like is there a medication that they can take that will manage their adhd symptoms but won't lead them into a relapse and it's complicated and 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 everybody has to sort of be on board and be honest and transparent to to figure it out. Yeah, and I feel
1: like that's actually a component where I mean, I personally know people that that has been the holdup of them going to therapy is they're not ready to verbally be that transparent with someone, nice. you know and and verbally be that um, just vulnerable of being like, I am throwing my dirt out to someone that I don't know, you know, and, and how that impacts. And, and I had a completely different, like when I was like, cause I did therapy in the past, I quit, I started going back to therapy. And every time I literally, I was like, this is what's going to happen. I had like projected how it was going to go. And it never goes the way that you think it does, because like in those moments of being vulnerable and in those moments of like airing out your dirty laundry, obviously when you're with the right provider and the right therapist, it's not scary at all. Like in my mind, like there were things that I said that I was like, no one knows this, you know, it was freeing to be able to verbally get that out and not have judgment at the same time, not have the reaction that I would expect from someone hearing such news and, you know, and stuff like that to where I was like, wow. And yeah. So I feel like a lot of people, they, they are like, yeah, therapy sounds great, but like, there's always this big, but and I tell them, I'm like, man, if you don't have the trauma, if you don't have, you know, the addiction component, if you're not in recovery, like it does not matter. I mean, talking to someone, on a therapeutic level that has zero bias, like they're there to just listen and help where they can. I'm like, that is so beneficial. Um, Even on just that very minute scale um, that I cannot. Yeah. I mean, the minute I went, I was like, why have I been putting this off for so long? Um, so that's like my, my big shout out, especially to what you do is like, man, whether you think you need it or not, you probably do. <laughs> you can't hurt. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all.
3: Well, I, I'm kind of from a different place. Cause I, I used a 12 step, uh, program to help me stop drinking. And, and in the program, you know, you have to take a couple of steps before, you do open up and you talk to someone and you feel that comfortable and and then it's not recorded right and so for me and my you know paranoia and I um you know I it's i mean i'm just being honest with you. i've tried therapists before like not for drinking though i mean drinking was always there and and it was the reason why that thing happened well But I, I did, I'd gone to therapists and I was a little, I was closed minded, just like I was to getting sober and the twelve program, you know, it's so funny. Um, But that initial, it's, I think what's really, what I'm hearing from you though, is that you take steps. Like the first step is to come in you take this mode, like you, we introduce you, we get to know you. Because for me, when I went to therapy, it was like, how is this person gonna know me? Like in an hour, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, and I, how am I going to get the answers that I want right now? You know, and, but that's, that's, that was incorrect thinking on my part. I needed to be trained almost by my therapist on how this is going to work. You know, you, you, we're not going to solve your problems today. <laughs> so, right. uh, Those you relations. know what I mean?
2: It takes time, right?
3: Yeah. 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 So, and then there was just that aspect of, you know, what is being written down and can that be used against me at a later time kind of deal. Um, so I, I like the fact though, and what I think I'm hearing is that you kind of go through phases, you educate the person coming in, you know, they may be more specific as to why they're coming in. Like, I want to stop drinking, help me.
2: Right. We ask and people, how do we them? what do you want to get, that's one of the, ther- the questions, the last question we ask in our, we do a, like a two hour interview. We go through their whole history and find out like sort of what could be driving their use. Um, but the last question we ask is what, what are you hoping to get out of therapy? And we ask them like you know, like, what is it? And, you know, it's, it's often surprising to me. It's not, you know, I, you know, we have our preconceived notions about what somebody might want, but it's sometimes it's something very different. Um, so we try to listen to that uh, and and partner with them and give them what they're looking for. Um, at the same time, we have some ideas, you know, that we can share and 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 say, well, we think it might be helpful for you to try this or that, or, you know, and so then we sort of use what they're looking for, use what we think might be helpful and we we talk it out and we sort of figure out a plan together um, that hopefully is good for them. And the other thing that we do that's a little different is not everybody who comes to us wants to be abstinent, so we ask them: Are you looking to moderate your use? Are you looking to? We, we call it partial abstinence. They might want to not use cocaine, but they want to be able to have a drink once in a while. We ask them like, what? How do you? How, what are you looking for? Like, are you looking for total abstinence? If they are, great. We can we can help with that, but. A lot of times, people are coming in like, I think maybe my marijuana is causing a problem, or maybe I'm drinking too much. I'm not really sure, and they just want to talk about that to sort of sort it out to see whether there's an issue or whether they can drink in a more controlled way. And so we'll 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 meet them, you know, at whatever uh, place they're at, um, and then you know. And, but at the same time, I always tell people, abstinence is easier, quitting totally is easier, and um, moderating is hard. And we will help you try that, but we also have to be completely honest and, and, and forthcoming with one another. If we think it's working or not working, there may come a time where either you say it's just not working, I can't do it, or we say, you know, I don't know if this is really working, like, let's, let's really look at this together. And
0: then we sort of figure it out together, you know, it's really a journey. I wanted to just touch on something that Tracy had said about um, confidentiality and give you an opportunity to respond to that and, and how um, how information is recorded and because I think that will, that does prevent a lot of people from actually going and, and sharing, as Meredith said, your dirty laundry. So, yeah. so
2: everything that people say when they come into us is confidential. Um, in the OASIS licensed treatment program, there's two levels of conf- confidentiality. There's HIPAA, which is like the same for all psychotherapy, for all medical um information protected health information. But then there's also something called 42 CFR, which is a federal um a regulation that provides additional support and confidentiality and privacy for people coming into treatment for alcohol and substance use issues because of this concern. Um, so we're we're like really careful about confidentiality and protecting our patients' information. Um, you know, the only times that we'll release something without a consent is if there's a child who we think is is um being abused or neglected, or an elderly person who's being abused or neglected, or if we think if someone has shared that they're going to harm a particular person. So there's a duty to warn that person, like, hey, someone's coming to get you, kind of thing, we we have to share that. Other than that, we don't, we don't share any information unless the our patient signs a consent saying, I want you to release this information to this person for this reason. Um, so it's all really private and confidential, confidential. We even have people sometimes who come in who use a pseudonym. You know, because they don't even want, they don't want anyone to know who they are. And we've, we've worked with that um, level of confidentiality as well. Um, and we understand that people are, people are, you know, worried about their dirty laundry getting out there. Um, we do group psychotherapy and in the groups, we always say what, what's said in group stays in group. Um, but that's a little, little less secure than individual therapy because, you know, people are people. I
4: have a, a- personal question on that what what do you do and what do your do your other therapists do when you are intaking all of this from all of your patients what is your outlet
2: yeah that's Um, a great question to
4: to, to, you know be balanced
2: yeah I mean it's hard work I mean our therapists like take it a lot like it's it's it is hard to hear um but you get better at it over time, like sort of building those boundaries, um, and then we we do the same things we tell people to do. I do a lot of meditation. Um, I do a lot of like deep breathing. I really like. I I use the Calm app, which is like you know available to all of us. Love it. Um, but I I like I like meditating. I run. I play with my dog and my, I have three cats. You know, I think there's like nothing nicer than having a cat sit on your lap purring. Like that is just like my favorite thing ever. Do you have one right now? <laughs> it's so soothing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's your cat's name?
3: Uh, Zoe, Zoe's oh. the kitty cat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: But yeah, she feels amazing. Grounding techniques, grounding—you know, sort of, sort of things that you can touch, things that you can hear, things you can see. Like, things, but I feel like cats are like perfect for that. You can touch them, you can hear them purring, you can pet them, you can, you know, um, hug them. You know, so I we do we do all the same things that that we encourage our patients to do.
1: That's amazing, and I feel—I mean, kudos to you, especially during the COVID. Um, I mean, I, I have friends, like I said, in the industry and I, whew, not only like that was just, that was tough on everyone. That was tough on the therapist. That was tough on the general population. Um, so to come out of it still passionate about what you do, you know, like that, that says something for sure.
2: Yeah. The COVID, the COVID time was really dark. I mean, especially in New York, it was just, I lived in, I lived actually in Jackson Heights, Queens, which was sort of the, the epicenter of the epicenter. There were just ambulances going by my apartment, like every, like we would do mindful exercises, mindfulness exercises. And it was like, what can you hear? And I'm like, an ambulance. <laughs> but, um, but I'm glad that, that it's, it's better now. Yeah. yeah. It, that was a tough time for everybody. Yeah. Well, I
1: so appreciate your time um, talking with us today. Um, kind of let us know, like, how can people find you? Website, social media, kind sure. of throw it out there on how people can find you.
2: So people can find us at wholeview.co. It's W-H-O-L-E-V-I-E-W.co. Um, we're pretty easy to find. I think we're the only Whole View out there um and we have and there's three different ways to reach us you can call us you can fill out a form online or you can book an appointment right off of our web of our website um so we're really easy to get and we have a whole team of, of therapists who are experts in different therapies so all those different therapies I mentioned I don't do all of them like I hired people who are like we have somebody who's an expert in eating disorders we have somebody who's an expert in um uh, neuropsych for the for the tbi you know so we have different people who are specialized um, who can provide treatment awesome
1: well again thank you so much dr church we sincerely appreciate your time and um yeah we look forward to kind of keeping in touch with you and maybe doing in second episode I, I have a feeling yes. there's
2: much more yeah. to talk about yeah this is really fun thank you so much for having me absolutely thank you dr church
1: thank,
4: thank you
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at 4 Sober Chicks. That's number 4 Sober Chicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.